Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. In 1979, um, the British government in Hong Kong decided to establish what they call a port of first asylum. And with the United Nations, they set up a system whereby if the genuine refugees leaving Vietnam could get to Hong Kong, they would be processed and then resettled overseas in the West. So Hong Kong putting its hand up in Southeast Asia saying, look, if you can get here safely, we'll look after you and through the UN, we will get you relocated. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora, and my guest today is Les Bird from Hong Kong. He has a fascinating history. He joined the Royal Hong Kong Police Force in 1976 and worked in the Marine Police for 21 years until June 1997. That was the time that Hong Kong was handed over back to China, known as the Hong Kong handover. And Les has experienced in his tenure many, many fascinating stories, starting from intercepting contraband goods coming in from communist China to actually dealing with illegal refugees, immigrants. Les, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Rita. It's very kind of you to have me on your show. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Likewise. Now, Les, I know that you have written a couple of books about your experiences, you know, as a Marine police officer. You've written a memoir, and then most recently in last year's Hong Kong Literary Festival, you talked about stories and photographs from your second book called Along the Southern Boundary, a Marine Police Officer's Frontline Account of the Vietnamese Boat People and Their Arrival in Hong Kong. This is so intriguing. Who were these boat people? Well, as you said uh, in the intro, I, I arrived in Hong Kong in, in 1976, which was literally 12 months after the war ended in Vietnam. And I joined the Marine District, so that meant I was out on patrol launches looking after the South China Sea and the waters to the south of Hong Kong. Coincidentally, that is when the boat people exodus or the exodus of refugees from Vietnam began. And it's been very well documented, but within about two years, Hong Kong became the venue of choice for these people fleeing war-torn Vietnam. And it was my job to go out across the South China Sea, meet them, 
rescue them if their boats are in danger and get them back to safety in Hong Kong where they were being dealt with by the United Nations for resettlement overseas. So my job was basically to go out to sea and look for them. And they were coming across the South China Sea in various different boats, anything that they could get their hands on. Mostly the condition of the boats were not very well suitable. So it required quite a lot of, um, I guess, maritime skill and experience to look after them, yeah. So, Les, just to give a little bit of context to the scenario, and this is for our listeners who may not be so familiar with the details of the Vietnam War, or perhaps the end of it, and, you know, the status of these refugees now escaping to Hong Kong. Explain to us, the war is over. What does that mean? Why are they escaping? And why is Hong Kong their target destination? Yeah, in simple terms, uh, the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese are at war for quite a long time. And in, nine, in April the 30th, 1975, the North won, basically. And the South became under the thumb of the uh, Northern regime, the, the mm-hmm. communist regime in the North. And uh, it became very, very difficult for people in the South to, to actually function. And persecution began, unfortunately, to the extent whereby a lot of people decided that they just needed to get out. And the borders, land borders were all closed. So they, they took to the sea and they went in all different directions. You know, to put it in perspective, it's estimated that between one and two million people actually fled by boat over the next 15 years. So mm-hmm. it it wasn't just at that particular moment, what that particular year, it, it, did, it did spread. And, you know, they tried to go to Thailand, they tried to go to Singapore, they tried to go to Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines. And the receptions in those countries were not that great. But in 1979, the British government in Hong Kong decided to do something about it. And they established what they call a port of first asylum. And with the United Nations, they set up a system whereby if the genuine refugees leaving Vietnam could get to Hong Kong, they would be processed and then resettled overseas in the West. So Hong Kong putting its hand up in Southeast Asia saying, look, if you can get here safely, we'll look after you. And through the UN, we will get you relocated. And of course, every country in the world, when I say Western country in the world, I mean the US, Canada, the UK, the European nations, Australia, all had to subscribe to this to take these people. So the system was they would try and leave, escape. That would be very, very dangerous. Uh, We would try and rescue them or meet them, bring them into Hong Kong where they could be processed by the United Nations and then moved on, which is what happened to be resettled in the West. So I have so many questions. Firstly, why did Hong Kong decide to open its doors to these refugees when certainly the other countries around Asia were not so willing? Um, I think it evolved over the first two years in that the other Southeast Asian nations were not particularly welcoming and were not willing to look after these people. So they were left drifting around. And after a while, it it got too much. And I think it was just the the British in Hong Kong decided we have to do something about it. And it's, it's it's quite remarkable, actually, because Hong Kong is such a tiny little place compared with if you look at the other size of the countries around Southeast Asia. It um, is indeed. And we, you were specifically deputed to or mandated to rescue them. 
you said that it was very, very dangerous for them to actually leave. Can you tell us why were, were they being stopped from leaving or were there other conditions? It evolved over several years. There were corrupt officials in Vietnam who were facilitating. They, they were giving people a hard time to the extent why they wanted to leave. And then they were asking them for money in, in order to facilitate helping them leave, if you like. Mm -hmm. So they were being bribed. And so they had to sell virtually everything that they had in order to buy a passage on a boat that was arranged by the local dignitaries, if you like. So there was this racket going on in Vietnam, which was pretty awful. And the boats that were being supplied to them, if you know anything about Vietnam, the, the south of Vietnam is a delta. It's, it's the Mekong Delta. So the boats that it's a, it's a maze of waterways and swamps and, and things like that. And the boats that were being given to these people were river boats, which are flat bottom boats and they're not seaworthy. So you mm. were overcrowded, not seaworthy boats. And they were, they were trying to make the 1000 sea miles across the South China Sea in open water. And if you can imagine a small boat, not suitable for heavy weather, overcrowded with families, lots of children, most of these people coming to Hong Kong, most of them were women and children. My um, goodness. So yeah. did the families make it intact? Some of them, yeah. Some of, Some them. of them. And yeah. the others lost along the way or um, were there well, stories? There are no official figures for how many people were kicked out or left Vietnam. It was a year after the war and nothing was being written down, nothing was being recorded. All we know is how many arrived in Hong Kong, how many we found. Um, we found 210,000 altogether. Mm. And from trying to estimate how many didn't make it, we think probably we, we managed to save about half. So, you know, big numbers didn't make it. There was a particular gentleman, a former soldier in the South Vietnam Army, who read your memoir, A Small Band of Men, and then he made contact with you. Can you tell us more about this? Who was he? Why did he contact you? And what emerged from that um, contact? Yeah, there was an incident in 1979, uh, the 26th of May, 1979, in which the boat that he was traveling on, he was a former soldier in Vietnam fighting for the South. He was with the Americans. He was attached to an American unit for a while. And he was a wanted man after the war ended. And he managed to evade arrest for about four years, actually. And in 1979, together with his young wife, they, they married uh, the, the week before they tried to escape. They got onto a, a, a ship that uh, made it to Hong Kong after six weeks at sea. Uh, they're in terrible condition. Mm. And I was the officer that found them. Actually, it was quite a dramatic entry into Hong Kong. The smuggling crew that, that had, had been driving the, uh, the ship decided to leave it and leave, leave the ship off uh, the Portuguese colony of Macau and mm. told the refugees to that's Hong Kong that way, you've got to drive it that way, we're off because we don't want to get arrested for bringing you here. So they, they actually drove into Hong Kong and not knowing how to stop the ship, saw the first beach that they, they came across and they drove the ship at full speed straight into the beach. Uh, there were 1,400, uh, 1,433 of them on board, mostly women and children. And this guy was on board. He was my age. We were both in our early 20s. And I was the first officer at the scene. I began to evacuate them off the ship. Uh, the ship was in danger of capsizing, so it was quite dramatic. But there was me and 1,433 Vietnamese. 
goodness. And I was trying to organize all this, and he remembered me. I'm quite a big person, and I, uh, I guess he's about the same age as me, so I guess he was helping as well, being a former soldier. But he remembered that incident, and I, I mentioned it in my first book, which mm. 40 years later he read. And then he got in touch and he said, I was on the beach at the same time as you in, on the 26th of May, 1979. You won't remember me, but I remember you. So we, we built up a, a bit of a relationship online. I, I was due to go. He's, he lives in California, by the way, uh, Santa Monica. That he, mm. he, he was given refugee status straight away because he was, uh, he'd worked for the Americans in Vienna. And he's been living there since together with his wife, his, his new wife, uh, that one week before they escaped. And I was going to go over to, to see him uh, two years ago, but then COVID closed the world and uh, that didn't happen. But we've, we've been keeping in touch. And he has contributed a lot of things about Vietnam prior to 1975 for me. Mm-hmm. So he became a, an excellent source of information um, for my second book. And he introduced me to a lot of other people, a lot of a lot of a lot of other former refugees that I had dealt with. So I've I've now got this network of new friends, online friends, uh, who were ethnic Vietnamese and now live predominantly in the U.S. and Canada. It's marvelous how you know writing a book, your memoir, will lead to all of this. What was his name, if you could tell us? What is his name, and what was his motivation for getting in touch with you? Beyond to say, I read your book, and gosh, I remember the incident. Did he want to write another book with you, or co-author he, it, or? Yeah, his name was Kang. Uh, his name is Kang. Kang Dang. Family name is Dang. D A N G, and his first name is Kang. C A N G. Kang. His wife is Yen. Y E N. So they, they live in California. He then decided, because of the dramatic things that had happened to him, that he wanted to write his memoir. Mm. So in between the two books, in between my two books, he wrote down his story. And he sent it to me and said, what do you think? And, and, and I said, well, I can help you with this. I can add facts to it. I can help you put it together. So in between my two books, he's been writing his too. <laughs> So, so we've been a, a book writing duo. Team. Well, <laughs> I find it fascinating, not only because I am just 15 minutes away, if that, from Santa Monica. So I would love to interview him too and, you know, make this a two-part series, you know, get his stories and your stories and mm-hmm. and see what comes of it. Mm-hmm. So, Les, I have to ask you, you know, as these people are coming in from Vietnam, what is their condition? Of course, they've escaped great danger, but are they terrified? Are they relieved? They're headed towards Hong Kong, happy to see you, scared. What's going through their minds? A lot, usually. First of all, there's a lot of fear, uh, what they've been through. You know, there's two, they had to, first of all, make the decision to leave. And, and that's, that's an awfully big decision. You, you, you're probably leaving members of your family behind. Mm-hmm. Quite often, the, the families had been divided. They put the younger ones on the boat because the younger ones had better chance of survival. So they'd left their parents, they'd left their grandparents behind. So you had divided families, people who were still going through the trauma of leaving their country and leaving everything that they'd always known, they'd grown up in. 
then of course there's the journey itself the unknown journey into the middle of nowhere most of these people had never been in a boat before most of them couldn't swim so and then of course food ran out um you know the, the sense of hopelessness was always there and they were a lot of them had been at sea for a long long time most were dehydrated all malnourished uh, there was a lot of dysentery oh. and Unfortunately, cholera had broken out in South Vietnam at about that time. So uh, there were a lot of sick people. So if you can imagine an open boat, an open wooden boat, that you would have second thoughts on getting onto to cross a river. Then you put a large, a very large number of people on it. So it makes it very unstable. And then they set off into the middle of nowhere. You know, it's when they arrived, when we found them, it, there was... All, every emotion that you can possibly imagine, every type. I mean, you know, they, they didn't suddenly start cheering, hope we've been saved, because they didn't actually understand where they were and who we were. Uh, there'd been a spate of Thai pirates patrolling around the southern area of the South China Sea, taking advantage of these people. Um, mm. You know, the fear of seeing another boat. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know if they were being rescued or whether they are going to be attacked. So, yeah, they were, they were in pretty poor condition, pretty poor mm. Now, Les, I know to write the second book, you used a lot of old photographs to help you jog your memory, which I understand was your wife's idea. Mm. And at the literary festival, your publisher, Pete Spurrier, suggested that you, you know, exhibit or show the audience some of these photographs and share the stories behind them. So can you share one story? that you like best. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Sure, what I did, for some unknown reason, I always carried a camera with me when I was out on patrol. And, and if the circumstances, not during a rescue, you couldn't do that. But if, if during uh, a lull in proceedings, if you like, I would take the camera out and I would take photographs of the different types of Vietnamese boats that were coming in. And if it was appropriate, I'd take photographs of the people as well, if it was okay with them. Mm-hmm. And I put, those, I put all these photographs away and never really thought about it again. And then, as I say, a publisher suggested maybe we can do something with these uh, photographs, and it became the basis of the second book. Uh, story, I mean, the stories um, are vast. They're, they're of rescuing small boats with full of children. There was a people smuggling racket, racket started by the corrupt officials in, in uh, Vietnam. I'll tell you that story. In 1979... They started buying large ocean-going freighters, boats that should have been scrapped. They were falling to bits. And then they would cram two or 3,000 people on, on board, and then they would hire a crew and pay them to take them to Hong Kong. And then the idea was they would arrive in Hong Kong and say, we saved all these people from the South China Sea. They're all refugees. Actually, it had been all organized in Vietnam for a large amount of money. So we had to deal with these people smuggling freighters that were coming in and going on board those was terrible because they crammed in two, 3,000 people in the cargo holds and the journeys had taken four or five weeks and the conditions were absolutely atrocious. Uh, there was no sanitation. There was very little fresh air and the food had been awful. The water had been contaminated. So you can, mm. you can imagine two or three thousand people stuck in a, an enclosure like a cargo hold for that period of time it was quite uh it's quite a shock when you first see it it's uh you know it's amazing how some mm. of them, uh, well actually some of them didn't but people died 
uh, on, on route and the bodies were thrown overboard. And I remember you mentioned in one of the interviews, and p- perhaps I'm confusing things, but these people were actually smuggled out by people, smugglers, mm. some of which just abandoned them and um, mm. sold parts of boats for gold or... Yeah, yeah, there was also... Well, Basically, the crew that were manning these boats were hired. Okay, so they were hired criminals with navigational experience. And their job was to get to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong was now being seen as a soft touch um, because we were taking everybody in. So these crews were being told by the organizers in Vietnam, you just get to Hong Kong and you'll be fine. You just tell, tell them that you rescued all these people. So that started... But then they got wise to that, and some of the crews decided when they got near to uh, Hong Kong, they would just desert, just run away. They'd take their gold, uh, which they'd been paid to do, and leave the refugees to drive the ships themselves. So we were a bit, we were intercepting ships that were being controlled now by some of the Vietnamese themselves who had virtually no nautical knowledge. So that, that in itself caused... <laughs> Quite, quite a bit of a challenge. But of course, the bottom line was to try and help the people that were on board. So, yeah, you know, there were, there were, there were collisions, there was, there was uh, sinkings of boats because people didn't know what to do and we were trying to help them. So frantic people, tired, you know, ill people, sick people trying to control um, very large ships. Les, when we spoke about this interview, you mentioned to me that... There was one particular character or one particular person, I should say, from your memoir who you were thinking of defining as a main character and fictionalizing. Can you share who that might be? Yeah. In my, my first book is a memoir, and it, it follows my 21-year career in the Marine Police. And it, it began uh, when I joined. I was a very young man. I was 20, 22 years old. And I went initially to work on on my first boat, and the character uh, was a larger-than-life character. Uh, his name is Don Bishop, and I've, I've, I've he's he follows me through my career. He becomes my mentor, if you, if you like. But he has a bit of a bipolar personality, or he, he had a bit of a bipolar. So from he would fluctuate from being very professional, very capable maritime commander to a raging bull of a, of a person who would lose his temper uh, at the drop of a hat. He was the largest and strongest man I've ever met in my life, which didn't help matters. Uh, one of his tricks was to, to shake hands with people and basically crush their hand. He was, he was about five feet ten, but he was practically as wide as he was tall. It was almost a cube. So he was actually a frightening person, particularly when he turned into this marauding psychopath type of character. So I had, he was my commanding officer for almost 10 years. So I had to not only navigate my way through all the, the cases, the, the illegal immigration, the Vietnamese, I was also trying to deal with this guy, Don Bishop, who one day would be a leader of men, and the next day he, he would be... A, sorts of trouble which was not related to the work he became obviously a major character through running through my first book because he was a, a very influential person in the book and an influential person on my career and he was so colorful and i think it's in predictability that made people interested in 
as a character. And therefore, I've decided in my third book to focus on him. Mm. So it's told in the first person, again, from me and my observations um, of him. The things I left out of the first book will go into the third book. So the third book will be more predominantly about him rather than me. Fantastic. So Les, as you know, coming to the premise of the True Fiction Project, this interview is going to be given out to a fiction writer. And if you could give that fiction writer a writing prompt, what mm. would you say? I would say, read up on, on your history of Hong Kong. <laughs> I, I would say, have fun with the, the character of Don Bishop. If you can take a look at my first book and get a sense of what he was like, I'd be very interested to see what you make of him. He was, a, he was unique. He was an oddball character. And the scope of what you could write about someone with a, a character such as his is, is endless. So just have fun. And uh, I'd really look forward to, to reading what you produce. That makes two of us. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Les, tell us the names of both of your books and where we can find them. Okay, um, the memoir, which came out in 2019, it's called A Small Band of Men, An Englishman's Adventures in the Hong Kong Marine Police. And it spans, that's the name of the book, uh, it spans 21 years of the last 21 years of British rule in Hong Kong. It's on Amazon. Um, it, it's in the shops, uh, certain shops anyway. Um, it's been out for two years and it's been doing quite well. And my second book came out in uh, November so just a couple of months ago. And that will be out in the States next month. Uh, it's called Along the Southern Boundary, and it's one man's experiences in dealing with the Vietnamese refugees as they came into Hong Kong. Les, thank you so much for joining us today on the True Fiction Project. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And you too. Thank you very much for having me. That is Les Bird, retired Hong Kong Marine Police Officer, and this is The True Fiction Project. And now to the premise of The True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. The Dawn of the Southern Boundary, written and narrated by Anna Marie Evans. Marine Commander Don Bishop stood on the forward deck of the police launch. He mopped his large billiard ball of a head with a white cloth as the droplets of sweat channeled their way down his hard and weathered face. He looked out at the pinkish dawn that stretched out along Hong Kong's southern sea boundary, the invisible line of latitude that separates Hong Kong territorial waters from the vast South China Sea. He was at his most content here. If indeed Don Bishop was ever truly content, Don was a restless soul whose rage would on occasion erupt out of nowhere. Last night, he'd polished off a bottle of single malt whiskey, and now, as the pangs of hunger began to play tricks with his mood, he paced the deck, trying to clear his thoughts. He needed a pot of hot coffee, 
and a good fried breakfast to settle things. Bishop turned towards the wheelhouse. Get Mr Chan up here to take my breakfast order. I'm famished. He shouted at anyone that was listening. The duty sergeant stopped what he was doing. Mr Chan is not on duty this trip, sir, replied the sergeant. We only have the crew's cook, Ah Chung. Shall I call him? Don rubbed his aching head once more. He's no use. What idiot gave Chan time off? The sergeant coughed and looked at his feet. I think it was you that signed the leave chit, sir. Damn, muttered Don, looking back out towards the horizon. It was the beginning of their third day at sea, out on patrol, looking for incoming refugee vessels from war-torn Vietnam. Don wondered how many ramshackle craft would arrive this day. Just recently, they had been arriving in their hundreds, boat after boat filled with desperate parents, grandparents with young children clinging to them. Most arrived in flimsy wooden hulks, river boats built with flat keels best suited for crossing the Mekong, vessels that became floating coffins on the open seas. God knows how many hadn't made it since these refugees first began arriving in Hong Kong. Poor blighters. Sir, it was a sergeant again, this time calling from the wheelhouse. We have a target on the radar, five miles to the south, heading due north, five knots. It looks big. Don huffed his way to the bridge and peered down at the moving dot on the dark radar screen. Without a moment's hesitation, he jumped into action. Let's go. Full speed. Don hit the emergency button. The deafening alarm bell sounded and the whole launch exploded into life. Immediately, officers appeared from every direction, running, scrambling, carrying all manner of survival gear. Everyone on board knew their role in the rescue. Don picked up a set of binoculars and scanned the horizon to the south. There, there she is. Sail, orange. He pointed forward. Once out in the open ocean, the big launch rolled, then pitched and tossed as the crew struggled to hold a firm line. Don took control of the wheel and manoeuvred the vessel skillfully upwind, allowing the now large rolling waves to propel the battered wooden junk towards the waiting police launch. From where he stood, Don could see that the overcrowded junk was taking in water and looked about to capsize. As the two vessels closed, Don ordered his men forward, some threw lines and grappling nets across. Others scrambled over the gap between the two boats and onto the crowded deck of the junk. In no more than a few minutes, Don's men had carried, dragged and hauled the bedraggled refugees onto their patrol launch. There wasn't a moment to lose. Don was screaming orders left and right as the last man and child was helped across and the last of Don's men made a jump back onto the police launch. The junk capsized and sank in a matter of seconds. One moment it was there, the next it was gone. Don and his crew had saved the lives of 148 people. Sir, I found one of the refugees that speaks good English, said Don's senior sergeant. He asked to speak to you. 148 people sat huddled together on the large open stern deck. Don's crew were edging between them, offering water to the weakest looking amongst them. A young Vietnamese man dressed in a dirty blue T-shirt and torn shorts stood up as they approached. Him, said the sergeant. You want to speak to me? What is it? Fired Don. Sir, began the man, my name is Chin Vu. I was an officer. 
a lieutenant in the ARVN, the South Vietnamese Army. I worked with the Americans. I need to speak to an American official. Can you help me, please? War's been over for four years, replied Don. How come you managed to stay out of prison? The Viet Cong would be interested in you for sure. How come you're still alive? From April 75, I hid in plain sight, Vu smiled. But now the new government is coming after us ethnic Chinese in the South, taking our property and possessions, throwing people into prison. The army have been searching for me. If they find me, he looked down. I must escape now. Don knew Vu was telling the truth. He had heard about the persecution from many others. He also knew that tens of thousands more were now trying to leave Vietnam in whatever boats they could find. We have been at sea for two weeks, said Vu. The last six days have been without food. We survive only on rainwater. Two children and an old woman died on the journey. We dropped their bodies overboard. I'll see what I can do for you at the refugee reception centre, said Don. We're heading there now. The government dockyard, Hong Kong's makeshift refugee reception centre, was in its usual state of chaos. Hundreds of wooden refugee vessels were lashed together with ropes in one huge raft-like rotting pontoon. Thousands of Vietnamese refugees sat in the burning noonday sun on top of this floating contraption and waited. Officials with clipboards, medical teams and immigration officers scrambled in between. Don grabbed Chin Vu from the stern. You, come with me. With that, Don pushed his way through the crowd towards the quay. Hey, you, go back. Get over there. It was an officious-looking dockyard security guard. He was pointing directly at Don and Vu. You, get back now. Without a word, Don thrust out a hand and grabbed the security guard by his throat. The guard gasped for breath, his toes barely touching the ground, his hands thrashing at thin air. Don pulled the man close to his chest so that their faces were just inches apart. Now listen to me, sport. Don began in a whisper. I'm Chief Inspector Donald Bishop of the Royal Hong Kong Marine Police and so far I have had a bad day. Don flicked a thumb towards Vu. This is my friend and we are going this way. Don nodded towards the officers to the rear of the dockyard. The guards' eyes were almost popping out of their sockets, his face a river of sweat. And you are going to sit here and say nothing. Nod if you agree, said Don. The guard did his best to comply. Good, said Don, dropping the man to the ground in a crumpled heap. He turned to Vu. You, follow me. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing. 
sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20.